sort of another health strategy, let's say, where there's this thin, you know, pa- thin layer of paper between your hand and the, the anatomy or the bacteria in the stool. And we think of it as being very protective, you know, as a very good strategy and much more civilized than using your hand itself. But the fact is that gastrointestinal infections spread in the U.S. very easily, too. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today I talk with Dr. Jonathan Reisman, whose new book is called The Unseen Body, A Doctor's Journey Through the Hidden Wonders of Human Anatomy, which is in its own way a travel book, not just a scientific journey through the human body, but also a look at how travel to places like India and Alaska and Russia can teach us about how our own bodies work. As a doctor, Jonathan has traveled to these places, and diagnosing and experiencing illnesses overseas has helped him to diagnose people back home in the United States. Together, we talk about how experiencing cultural differences in how we eat or how we wipe our bottoms in the toilet can lend perspective on our own culture's health habits, good and bad. We talk about how modern medicine still doesn't have a full understanding of things like how fat affects our health or how sleep works. We start by talking about the way travel can put us into a relationship with our bodies that just doesn't happen at home. Let's listen in. Well, Jonathan, part of what interests me in your book is that, as you point out in your book, travel can put you into an interesting new relationship with the unseen body, with our own unseen bodies. you go to countries where there's no toilet paper and you're trying to figure that out, or you're going, as I did, to a place like Syria where you can go to the market and get sheep's brain sandwiches. Um, and even like something so simple as jet lag, which is a part of travel, um, sort of teaches you about how your body works. Um, so you're a doctor. How has travel informed your medical practice? Uh, well, travel has been a big part of my medical practice since, you know, since it started, my training started in medical school. I loved travel and had traveled uh, a bit before I ever went to medical school. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought about sort of becoming a permanent traveler. I thought about being a travel writer. I sort of always jotted things down as I went. Um, and, you know, as you know, you see a lot of interesting things, experience a lot of interesting and kind of, uh, uh, perspective shifting things when you travel. And mm-hmm. so I, I, I loved that, uh, for years before I ever decided to go to medical school. Um, and then when I went to medical school, I sort of brought that travel perspective with me and, and in many ways it impacted my medical career, sort of the way I approached learning about the body itself, mm-hmm. um, how I, how I sort of felt about traveling through the body, but also, um, in my medical career, I've kind of taken my skills all around the world and been able to practice medicine in very remote parts of the world. And so combining travel and being a doctor has been uh, a really great part of my career. Yeah, it sounds like there's almost a travel writer parallel in your medical career because travel writers are, 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 are pretty much generalists. I mean, there, there are certain travel writers who always write through the lens of food or architecture or some aspect of culture. But in, for the most part, travel writers sort of have to keep their eyes out for everything. That's right. Um, I think, you know, there's certainly an increasing trend towards more and more specialization in medicine as we know more and more and have more and more treatments and diagnostics available. But um, and if for advancing a medical career, that's often a good step to take is picking a very specific narrow niche and, you know, being the one who knows more than anyone else about it. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think my own perspective was, as you said, more of a generalist. I think I have too many interests yeah. in, outside of medicine. And then with, when it comes to the body, I found just too many different body parts and bodily fluids interesting and could never 
choose just one. Um, and so I sort of trained in a gen, you know, general medicine, general pediatrics and still practice in the emergency room, which is, I think one of the most general way you can approach being a doctor because you just see absolutely everything there and diseases in every body parts, but also, you know, levels of sickness from you should be home drinking chicken soup to you should be in an ICU and everything in between so you, the ER is where you just see everything and every aspect of disease and also kind of social, you know, social instability and people's personal problems. You just kind of see absolutely everything in the ER. So I like that. Yeah. You, you actually use, uh, uh, an analogy of the ecosystem as sort of seeing um, seeing the body ecosystemically uh, in the same way that you might see a, a landscape in terms of its ecosystems and interrelationships. Um, and so, before we get into the to the weeds of some of the specific things I want to talk about, I'm I'm curious to know can can you even be a specialist? I mean, there's tremendous upsides to knowing having tremendous knowledge and a medical understanding of how our bodies work, how disease happens, and how we can treat it and um, heal people. Um, but there's certainly a downside. Uh, you know, the, the organs aren't necessarily uh, interconnected. And so doctors sort of, you know, I talk about in my book the need to think ecologically as a doctor, but in some ways doctors already do that. You know, hmm. when a doctor prescribes a medicine for the heart, a lot of them might have side effects that might affect the kidneys. And so you have to take into account that other distant but interrelated organ that you might, you know, hamper or cause dysfunction in when you're, tr- when you're treating the organ sort of in front of you. And so sometimes that can be an issue, you know, like uh, a specialist in the heart, a cardiologist, you know, certainly they're, they're aware of their, the side effects of their drugs. They know more about the drugs they tend to prescribe than anyone. And so they, they do think about those other non-heart organs, you know, they have to. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, when people have a lot of specialists, for instance, a complex medical problems and multiple specialists, things can fall uh, through the cracks between them and they can, you know, specialists can be sort of overly focused on their organ of interest and sort of uh, not take into account all the, the person's other, let's say, medical conditions or, um, you know, those complicating factors of how diseases and in different body parts interrelate. So there is there is often a need for that generalist, let's say the hospitalist overseeing all the specialists caring for an inpatient or the primary care doctor that's sort of like the captain, you know. Um, maybe getting advice from this specialist or that specialist about a specific body part, but that mm-hmm. sort of step back, larger ecological view is very important to avoiding medical, you know, medication redundancy, uh, medication interactions, and just sort of making sure the whole patient's cared for. You know, sort of like blind uh, blind people feeling different parts of the elephant. Sometimes medical specialists can be like that. Hmm. Well, I want to d- jump into different parts of the body's ecosystem, and I'm probably going to start with feces, and my readers might think it's gross, but you actually have a, a chapter dedicated to feces. It feels like something that's really related to travel, because I think um, like going to the bathroom is almost its own travel vernacular, that, it, that suddenly we're, um, we're sick in ways we didn't expect to be, uh, and like I said earlier, we're, we go to countries where using toilet paper is not very normal. Uh, you focus on India uh, in your chapter. What did India teach you about the role that feces and this toilet ritual plays in our lives? So I got I got a great uh, opportunity to travel to India. I actually took a year off from medical school, which some advice uh, an older doctor gave me. He said the next time you'll be able to take a year off will be when you're retired. So hmm. you should think about doing it now. So I took a year off between the third and fourth, the uh, third and last year of medical school, 
turned out to be a very good idea and uh, spent six months in India. And not surprisingly, one of the experiences I had there was getting what we call traveler's diarrhea, a very common occurrence. You know, initially I was sort of very vigilant, would only drink bottled water, would make sure to keep my mouth shut while showering and hmm. certainly never drinking the water they put in the medical, the metal, metal cups on your table in a restaurant commonly in India. And then about three weeks in, I sort of got this false uh, and very incorrect confidence that maybe I had gotten used to sort of the local flora, the, uh, the bacteria. And so I started drinking uh, and eating freely, and that turned into uh, high fevers and chills and some diarrhea. Um, but I think the perspective I got there, you know, there was a perspective as a doctor where in the U.S., when, for instance, um, when we treat, let's say, children with uh, intestinal infection, gastroenteritis, you know, I would often admit them to the hospital, give them IV fluids for a few days, and they would go home. It was a very ho-hum medical condition, very usually not severe, you know, not dangerous, easy to treat. Um, but when I got to India, I learned all about kind of the, the incredible impact of diarrhea on um, on children in India. And actually, simple diarrhea kills thousands and thousands of children in India. So there's there's that perspective uh, shift that I got while I was there, which was very eye-opening and, you know, just um, for lack of very cheap things like uh, oral rehydration salts, um, you know, children are dying and, and that's sort of a tremendous difference when you travel to another country. But on the personal level, diarrhea, I had another perspective shift when I learned about how the Indians, how Indian people clean their bottoms. And it was something I knew about and sort of asked when I first got there to Mumbai, uh, asked the medical students about and they explained how, yes, you know, toilet paper is not used, but rather just water is and your own left hand uh, is used to sort of clean yourself after you have a bowel movement. Never the right hand, uh, mm -hmm. just the left hand. Um, and so, you know, you can eat with your right hand, shake hands with your right hand, and but never the left because that's reserved for sort of um, cleaning the unholy part of your anatomy. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting because that itself is sort of a public health measure, right? You know, if we teach people to never shake hands with the hand they clean their bottom with, you'd think there would be less transmission of intestinal infections. Hmm. Probably doesn't work so well, but you can see there is this sort of um, health strategy in that cult of what has become a cultural tradition. Yeah. Well, I'm left-handed. Uh, and so I had to learn that pretty quickly, not just in India, but in places like Thailand um, and other parts of Asia where it's the, the cultural reason why the left hand is sort of taboo is because it is the wiping hand. That's right. And creating that taboo is, you know, a public health measure in some ways. Hmm, hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, I think we see, we see toilet paper as sort of another health strategy, let's say, where there's this thin, you know, thin layer of paper between your hand and the, the anatomy or the bacteria in the stool. And we think of it as being very protective, you know, as a very good strategy and much more civilized than using your hand itself. But the fact is that gastrointestinal infections spread in the U.S. very easily, too. So I think we have an overly, you know, competent um, opinion of, of toilet paper as a similar public health strategy. Yeah, no, um... Somebody told me once, like, if you had feces on your face, would you wash it with paper or water? It made me sort of rethink the whole ritual. <laughs> um, so how did you come? Did you end up being a water wiper after your time in India? I did. Well, while I was there, um, you know, actually that, that first bout of diarrhea um, was, was also the first time I ever got the chills, which was interesting uh, right. experience. I think as a doctor, it's always interesting to experience disease yourself. Uh, for the first time. And in India, not only did I have the, the chills for the first time and finally sort of felt what that was like, I also 
had my first bout of gastritis, uh, had my first bout of sinusitis. And so I had a lot of medical firsts for myself, hmm. which actually has definitely helped in my ability to um, diagnose it in other people because I really know how it feels and sort of will never forget the, the different symptoms. You know, the way your upper teeth hurt um, when you have sinusitis or the way you, you feel uh, bloated and burp a lot with gastritis, these things are burned into my memory. So I think that's helped me. Yeah, so after that first bout of diarrhea where I, I used toilet paper too many times and, and um, you know, needed something more soothing and tried the water reluctantly and was an instant convert. So for the rest of my trip there, I did use uh, the water system. And when I got home for a bit too, though I did end up getting uh, used to toilet paper again. And that was a similar experience. A lot of the med students I met there who were from India, a lot of them tr subsequently traveled to the U.S. Um, to do either rotations or to become medical residents or some of them live here now. You know, they were sort of like, how do you use paper? I don't understand that at all. It sounds so unpleasant and it wouldn't clean you. You know, something so as foreign to them as wiping with your left hand was to me. But actually, once they got here and we followed up since and we're still friends, uh, you know, they got used to the paper too. And they found, yeah, it works also. Yeah, it's interesting how there's almost, there's like a modernity aspect to this. Uh, it also affects other parts of the other chapters you wrote about, like our relationship to fat um, and our relationship to food. Uh, and, and so it feels like maybe, do you, like, do you know in Western cultures, Western cultures, which are now toilet paper cultures, do you know how wiping was done 100 or 500 years ago? I, I don't know. With rags? I'm not sure. Do you know? I, I, I don't, but I think maybe you mentioned that there's some cultures that don't even use water because water is not very abundant. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think it was a different system. There was I, certainly, the, it can't, like even the, the, the colonists who first came to North America probably didn't bring or make toilet paper. So I don't know, water, dirt? Maybe that's another podcast episode. Yeah, I mean, I, I I've looked into that a little bit and um, and wasn't didn't come to any conclusions. Hmm. Uh, but as you said, you know, I I was doing a medical rotation in Tanzania studying mm -hmm. newborn health, and one of my colleagues there, I was he was uh, raised in a rural village in Tanzania. He's a physician now, and I asked him about how they did it in, how they wiped their bottoms in his village, and you know, he said, as I mentioned in the book, if you tried to use water, they would have thought you're crazy because water just was not mm -hmm. very abundant at all. Mm -hmm. So there he said, you go into the bush and use whatever's around a rock, a leaf stick. Yeah. No, I, I suspect that that's, gosh, there's a, probably a book in that, like the, the, the cultural wiping your ass as a, as a metaphor for cultural ways of, of seeing the world, just because, uh, yeah, I can't, I, I would imagine it developed over time. I don't know if there's any academic studies that mix history and health in such a way. Um, but it feels like this is, of course, tied into food. It's our digestive system. Uh, you write about uh, eating sheep's head or basically kind of sheep's face in Iceland. I know that um, food is often a lens through which we see cultural differences as travelers. Uh, I think oftentimes, at least in the United States, you can, um, I'm interested to know your thoughts. It feels like we, we sort of eat the, the mobility muscles, like we, we eat the muscles on a cow that help them walk around. Uh, we're, sometimes we eat their liver, but we're less likely to eat other organs. You mentioned how lungs are sort of taboo in the United States. So what did travels uh, to places uh, like Iceland teach you about um, what food teaches us about the body? 
the the perspective of sort of seeing the body from a from a food perspective um, was instilled in me early in medical school in, in anatomy lab. There was a professor who always liked talking about which muscles we were learning about in the cadavers correspond to which cuts of meat. And and that got me very interested and sort of turned me into a, sort of a foodie in some ways, or at least made me more interested in learning about how uh, the bo- our bodies and the very similar bodies of animals do become food. Um, and I think that perspective is really useful um, because it, it's sh- one thing I learned in medical school, for instance, is that basically every part of animals is edible, you know, unless it's made of something hard like teeth or horn or bone and it's going to hurt you if you try to swallow it. Mm-hmm. Um, every part of animals is edible. And so therefore, you know, why do we choose certain body parts over others uh, to eat? And I think traveling, seeing different cultures, how they do it, not only which parts, but maybe which animals are, are eaten. You know, and when I was in uh, Kamchatka, one of my t- times there, I had a blood sausage made from a horse. Hmm. And so that was sort of a double whammy of, of interesting cuisine for me because it was blood sausage, which I had never had before. And it was made from a horse, an animal that you don't usually eat in the U.S. And it would be hard to even find that meat, I think. So you sort of see how different cultures eat different animals, eat different parts of the animals, perhaps eat those parts or cook them and prepare them in different ways. Um, when you're when you're interested in eating unusual animal uh, body parts, internal organs, or offal, you almost necessarily get this cultural tour around the world to see how different cultures do it. And um, it's very enlightening. And I think gives you perspective on our own culture, why we choose the organs to eat that we do. You know, why, as you said, lungs are actually illegal to sell or serve as human food in the U.S. because of something, a, a rule made in 1971 that makes no sense, which I explain in uh, in, in the book. I explain it makes no medical sense, even though it's supposedly it's supposed to protect the public. Um, so I think you, you get different perspectives on the body, even something like haggis, which I had in Scotland, mm. you know, showed me that, oh, you can actually use a stomach for, uh, you know, s- storing ch- ground meat or something, not just the intestines, something I never thought about. And that sort of made me think about other parts of the body, like dilated parts of tracts where you can store something or cook something. And then you discover that in for instance, in France, you know, they have a dish where they cook uh, chicken inside a, a, a pig's bladder. Hmm. Sort of the bladder offers this natural casing, you know, for cooking inside of. Um, and so it sort of that alone gives you different different perspectives on the body that you wouldn't get from a strictly anatomy perspective or a doctor's perspective. Were there were there foods in your travels that struck you as strange, or as a guy who's so familiar with the with the human body, did it all? Was it just a matter of thinking, huh? Oh, well, I guess they do put lungs in haggis in Scotland, right? Um, I, it was all I would say pretty thrilling. The only food that I've ever not taken a, a bite of while traveling was a, a dish of rotten fish heads in Kamchatka. Hmm. Um, wasn't the part of the body that was the issue. I guess it was the, the, the fermentation or rotting process um, and the smell that uh, I do. I actually regret it, but I did not uh, try it um, at the time because of the smell. Um, and there's, you know, the r- rotting and fermenting and preserving um, sort of brought to this very uh, pungent art in the Arctic, especially in Eurasia, but also in, in North America. And there's a lot of foods that are sort of left out for sometimes up to a year or buried in the ground. You know, there's everything from stinky fish heads, as they call it, to stinky beaver tail and stinky uh, 
seal flipper, which are delicacies in, in certain parts of Alaska, for instance. And I have no problem with those body parts, but sometimes the fermentation process can, can be uh, very daunting. Hmm. Are, are, there, are there some of our foods in North America that other cultures would seem as strange, see, see as strange? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think, you know, I guess in, in a lot of parts of the world where maybe they're still used to using every part of the animal, um, perhaps it wouldn't be, um, so strange, I would think, but probably the fact that we only eat very certain parts, as you mentioned, you know, mostly the muscles and very occasionally the internal organs, that would probably be the strangest part to, uh, to much of the humans living on earth that we sort of pick and choose which body parts we want to eat and, end up throwing out or feeding to our dogs the other part. Hmm. When, when you were in Alaska, you talk about the indigenous diet in the part of Alaska you visited it was very fat-oriented. Um, and I'm just interested in the idea of fat because you brought up some interesting questions. And, and I think our relationship to fat, as you say in your book, is, is not always a healthy one. But I remember there was a time maybe in the 70s when like uh, Bollywood movie stars in India were were just a lot more corpulent than American movie stars. By the time I went to India uh, in the early aughts, it was less that way. But I went to a place like Myanmar. It, it feels like poorer countries sort of have fatter, I guess, uh, public figures. When, when I was in Korea, the, there was a difference. There was two different words for fat. There was tong tong and tung tung. Um, tong tong is healthy fat and tung tung is unhealthy fat. Um, so what did traveling to Alaska teach you about the human relationship with fat? Right, that's an interesting observation about, um, Korea. And I think the, the perception of being fat, um, you know, changes over time, you know, and I think in the past, um, you know, some centuries ago, let's say, or a century ago, right? The rich tended to be, the rich and powerful tended to be overweight and mm. the poor tended to be skinnier. And, you know, interestingly, by the same token, the rich kind of never got sun, uh, were pale, you know, they wanted to be pale while the, the poor were working out in the sun, mm-hmm. getting all the exercise and getting all the, the healthy sunlight and the, you know, eating the brown rice and the whole grains while the rich were eating the more refined white rice and white grain. Now everything seems flipped in a way, hmm. which is interesting where now the rich get all, you know, go to, go to the gym and get personal trainers and are exercising and eating whole grains and not smoking and getting sun on their vacations. Um, and they're skinny, you know, and the, and the, the poor tend to, you know, this is a simplification, of course, but the poor tend to maybe perhaps not be uh, as interested or able to afford, you know, whole grain from whole foods, et cetera, mm-hmm. uh, getting less suns, smoking cigarettes. So everything sort of is flipped on its head in a way. And also, you know, there is a, a relationship between socioeconomic status and obesity hmm. that's now reversed where, you know, the kind of wealthier tend to be, uh, have less obesity. So, um, things change in cultures over time as they, as they develop. I always thought that kind of flipping was interesting, but Alaska in particular, um, I was really taken by their traditional diet, which is over 50%, uh, traditionally over 50% of all calories comes from animal fat. You know, I had come from medical school where fat was sort of this vilified body part. You know, there's, there's fat on our bodies and obesity. There's fat in our diets, um, which is often, you know, doctors are often advising people sometimes really without a good evidence base to, to eat less fat. And then there's the fat in our bloodstreams in the form of cholesterol and triglycerides. And 
in every way, fat was painted as the enemy uh, from the doctor's perspective. And then you go to a place like the Arctic where humans could never have even lived in such an inhospitable environment without tremendous amounts of, of animal fat and specifically animal fat. Obviously, they're not eating olive oil, you know, the quote unquote healthier fats, but yeah. they're animal fats, which are supposed to be sort of staying away from. Um, and I think it, among other things, it, it showed me how complex the story of metabolism and fat is. And in the chapter, I speak to um, kind of one of the authorities on um, obesity and diet in the U.S., Dr. Lee Kaplan uh, in Boston, who who kind of points out just the story is incredibly complicated, how fat in our diets affects the fat in our bloodstreams and the fat on our bodies. And we're, we're almost at the beginning of understanding uh, this complexity. You know, there's eth- ethnic differences where natives of the far north have, have evolved the a more efficient way of metabolizing certain kinds of fat that are found in, in marine mammal blubber, omega-3 and omega-6. And, you know, their bodies, because of genetics and, the, and evolution, they, they process it better. And so, um, you know, there's these differences between ethnicities and how we metabolize fat. And there's even differences within, within ethnicities. Every individual is slightly different. And within families, even, I know a family where two sisters, one of them could, can't lose weight no matter how she tries, and the other one can't gain weight, and very skinny no matter how she tries. And so there's this tremendous variability from person to person. And so as, as Dr. Kaplan said, you know, we have about 22,000 genes and 5,000 of them, almost a quarter, are, are just for metabolism. And so you could imagine that the picture is so complicated. And doctors have been flip-flopping on fat for decades, you know, and hmm. with nutritional science is making everyone dizzy. And I think he correctly points out people think we're a bunch of idiots at this point. So we have a long way to go to understanding the full story about fat and our bodies. Is is there any medical definition or medical uh, delineation between that Korean definition of fat between tong tong healthy fat and tung tung unhealthy fat? Well, so there are some different kinds of fat. You know, in medical school, I learned about sort of the pear-shaped body versus the apple-shaped body. You know, mm-hmm. people, some tend to carry the, the fat around their hips and, and upper thighs, um, which is, is actually not as unhealthy. You know, not does not have an, a strong association with cardiovascular risk and heart attack and stroke, et cetera, as where the apple-shaped body, where it's sort of all in the belly, that's associated with uh, with more cardiovascular risk, and why exactly is not under, not fully understood. But the apple shaped body, they tend to have more fat around their organs as opposed to under the skin, and mm-hmm. so it, it's thought that that kind of organ fat um, is more associated with with the or in some way causal of the cardiovascular risk. And it's it's actually not clear. Like fat is sort of an endocrine organ; it secretes a lot of hormones that affect everything from appetite to blood clotting. And so um, it's not totally clear why, or there's some studies that suggest actually the fat around your organs might actually itself just push on blood vessels. Like the fat around your kidney might physically smush the blood vessels going to your kidney and and cause, because of um, hormonal changes resulting from that smushing the blood vessels, might contribute to high blood pressure or hypertension. So it might actually be this combination of hormonal changes, as well as physical pushing on organs and another way in which the story is not totally clear. But do those, uh, is that the dichotomy they use in Korea? Is that sort of those two body shapes fit that dichotomy? I, I really don't know because I was young when I was there and I just thought it was sort of funny that there were two kinds of fat. 
and in fact, um, I had this videotape where I would show I would show my father, my father, grandfather, my sorry, my farmer grandfather um, was, was would like he taped a message to my Korean students, and a lot of them wrote him letters, and they said you're very you're very handsome and fat, and I thought that was so <laughs> strange, but um, and so I just thought it was amusing that something you would never say to somebody in the United States, but basically they're just saying you're 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 healthy fat, you know you you're obviously a a healthy guy even though you're in your seventies, um, and so I don't think I was that thoughtful about it at the time, but now in retrospect, and of course reading your book about fat, it made me realize that maybe they have a cultural specificity to fat that we don't uh, as English speaking North Americans. Right. And I think, you know, the perspective in the U S of obesity and of, you know, people um, who are overweight, especially among doctors, you know, could use some of that nuance, I think, because as as we're starting to recognize and talk about, you know, not all having more fat is not always bad. It's sort of very different in different cases. Some people who are overweight, and have more fat on the body, get all the metabolic syndromes of blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, vascular disease, and then other people can be overweight and have no, none of those complications. Hmm. Um, you know, some people, when they lose weight, their diabetes type 2 does go away, and other people, it, there might, it might not be related. They might not have any hint of diabetes. So there is a tremendous variability, and I think the, that's an important realization for especially the, the medical community to make that there are these different kinds of fat. There are these different types of obesity. There, you know, it's not one size fits all in any way. It's way more complicated than that. We have a lot to learn. Well, it's interesting that there's just a, a cultural specificity to all of this. That um, in indigenous Alaska or in a place like Korea or the United States, fat is discussed in different ways and understood in different ways and consumed in different ways. There's also, you know. You eat. You talk about eating. I believe sheep's eyeballs in Iceland, which is something we're not used to. Um, and then, actually, the one thing that occurs to me: you talk about early in an early chapter in the book, the location of the throat and the lungs are not very wisely located in the human body. Yet, um, we have sort of medicalized death in the United States. We've we've figured out how to forestall death in so many ways, but not often in a dignified way. So. I guess this is a big, big picture question that might include what we eat in the United States and how we view fat in the United States and how we view death in the United States. Given like the high tech nature of medicine these days, and you know, high tech food industry, what are we getting wrong? Do you think what are we what are we what have we not quite figured out in North America uh, in in viewing the body? Well, I think that that's a very good question, and I think that you know some of the trouble comes. Some of the trouble I think that we run into when we kind of get more and more medical power, you know, the ability to keep people alive, prolong life, forestall death, you know, some there's inherent kind of troubling things we run into when, you know, as a necessary outgrowth of that. For instance, I had a patient recently who um, kind of had a severe accident and a head trauma and was, um, you know, for all intents and purposes, was going to have no brain function going forward, but he was still being kept alive on a, on a ventilator. And it's sort of now, okay, family, like you have to give us permission to pull the plug. It's almost an absurd situation to put a family into, you know, it would almost be easier if we didn't have the power to keep that person alive. Um, Not that it's ever my decision who should live and who should die, but it's sort of like this family's already grieving this horrific accident. And now you're, you're giving them this, this key, this power, and saying, you have to decide, should we keep him alive or should we pull the plug? Hmm. And just 
being in that position alone, I mean, it's just unimaginably heart-wrenching if you haven't been in that position. And that happens all the time in medicine where, yeah. you know, we, we have more power than it seems good for us to have, you know, almost sort of like with nuclear weapons. Um, it, it would almost be better if we had less. I mean, obviously, there's many good sides to having advanced medicine. But um, it does uh, create these wrenching situations where we have to decide who lives and who dies. Um, and that that's very hard for people. But I think, you know, I think nutrition is a great uh, example of, of what we're getting wrong, or at least what we have definitely not gotten right yet. And that's evident to everybody who follows the news. You know, eggs are good for you one week, bad for you the next, and no one can keep it straight. Doctors don't agree. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, the way we used to eat in ancient times, you had no choice but to eat healthy, wholesome food. Um, but once uh, industrial chemistry met, you know, food, we sort of can break food down into all its nutrients. We learned about vitamins and essential amino acids and everything. We almost have to sort of build it back up, you know, now that we've broken it down into a million pieces and don't know what the heck is going on. We sort of need to build it back up into sort of a, you know, a more well-rounded understanding of, of food as a whole and how it uh, heals our body. And I'm, I'm optimistic about the next few decades that we're really going to make progress in nutritional science as where the last 50 seem, we seem to have run around in circles, vilifying sugar and then fat and then sugar and then fat. And, you know, so I think, I think we will make progress, but we're not there yet. Yeah, it occurs to me that journalism might be at fault a little bit too, because journalism likes to grab onto things that seem new or different or a change or a new panic. And I think maybe possibly there's less consensus on some of these is are eggs good for you or bad for you and but the news would make us think that suddenly this is changing every other week um so my own profession is at fault there i think <laughs> i think that's a good point and it's hard to communicate science to the public as we've seen in, in spades the last few years um it's hard to also because there's so much uncertainty you know but if you get some sort of sexy sounding study of five people who ate chocolate and felt better, you know, um, and you conclude that, oh, chocolate's good for you. I think that that, that does a disservice to the public. Um, and, and, and yeah, I, I think in some ways, you know, it's hard to communicate science along with its uncertainty to the public and why some studies are good and some studies are bad and how to interpret the literature, which itself is constantly changing. But I, I think, yeah, better communication is important and especially the uncertainty. Yeah. You mentioned uh, head trauma as an example. Um, I wrecked a motorcycle in Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka several years ago, and it, it has inhibited my sense of smell. Um, I've also had some sleep issues since then. Uh, and so you write about sleep. You actually write about, is it called the pineal, pineal gland or uh, pineal I say, gland? I say, pin, I say pineal. Okay. I've heard pineal. It's named after pine, the, a pine seed, like from a pine, oh. in, a, in a pine cone, because that's sort of what the gland looks like. Well, I didn't, I'd never even, uh, I'd probably heard of it, but I didn't really know what it was until I read your book. And then it regulates sleep in a way that you can explain in a second. But it just, it, it occurs to me that it's, that sleep, after being a good sleeper my whole life, I had a, uh, a motorcycle wreck and then with head trauma. And then I got married, which is a great thing, a bad thing, and then a great thing. And so sleeping, I, I don't know if that has affected things, but in the last couple of years, being a married guy with recent head trauma, I just don't sleep as well. I, I, I use Ambien a lot more than I used to. I never would have thought I would have had to do that. So I get the sense that the pineal gland isn't that well understood. Um, and so any sense for what happened in my brain or what might be amiss 
and how, what do we understand about sleep from a medical perspective? I'd say the one thing that we're most sure about is that people in general are not sleeping enough that we know, but that's, uh, that's pretty obvious. Um, and that goes for people at home and especially people in the hospital, as I write about in the book, how being, uh, you know, ill and hospitalized where you think sleep is an important part of healing yet the hospital environment is this noisy, chaotic, hmm. uh, overly, you know, uh, fluorescent lights shining all day and night place where no one can get any sleep. And so that's, that's, definitely not good. And there's tons of studies showing that losing sleep in the hospital is not good for your, you know, your outcome, the prognosis is worse. Um, so <clears throat> I think that uh, sleep is definitely still a mystery. You know, we know we need it. We know every person and even every, you know, most animals, even some microorganisms have some version of sleep. Um, we know we need it and we know we're not getting enough of it. I would say those are the two pillars of what we're certain about. Um, but the, the pineal gland does seem to play a role uh, in this. The pineal gland is one of the endocrine glands that secretes hormones. And it was the last to really be understood by medical science, um, partly because of its location. It's very deep inside the brain and it's almost impossible to get in there and study it without you know, causing severe brain damage. Um, but it does seem, at least its main function, it seems, is to secrete the uh, the hormone melatonin, which it secretes mm. into the cerebrospinal fluid. The pineal gland is kind of uh, hanging over the cerebrospinal fluid. Uh, there, it's sort of just dripping this hormone into it. And the hormone is ma- uh, melatonin basically released uh, a few hours before bedtime, and it sort of prepares the body in a way for sleep. Sometimes people will get a little bit of a chill um, kind of later in the evening, and that chill is partly uh, due to melatonin, which um, dilates blood vessels and, and causes um, some changes in body temperature. Um, but, you know, light affects the pineal gland, and it, the, the, the control of sleep in the pineal gland is very complicated, but the hypothalamus is involved as well. And um, so basically, you know, some people are night owls and sort of their pineal gland will secrete, you know, maybe early in the morning after their night shift. And other people are larks, as we call them, get up very early in the morning, are most most kind of uh, their brains working best at uh, early in the morning. And they tend to have their melatonin secreted perhaps in the evening. And so there's a lot, most people are somewhere in the spectrum in between that. Um, but definitely uh, the role of light on the pineal gland is very important. So I talk about in the book. I was sort of a, an owl all through college, you know, sleeping basically all day and having fun all night, of course. But uh, once I got to medical school, the, the healthcare runs on a, on a very early morning schedule. And so it was hard for me to adjust. But, um, you know, getting actually having sunlight shine on your eyes early in the morning does influence your pineal gland. It can help you adjust to that morning, uh, that morning hour, kind of turning from an owl into a lark as I was forced to do. Um, but sleep loss is complicated. You know, some of it is just that light, right? We all have screens. We're surrounded by screens. We have our smartphones in bed with us, mm. shining this sort of false sunlight on our eyes, which is affecting our pineal glands and maybe telling them, hey, it's not time for sleep. You know, the sun is still shining. And so I'm sure our pineal glands are quite confused by all that. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, sleep loss is, is tough. The specific causes are are difficult to understand. And I'm not sure... We understand that fully either. You know, why your traumatic brain injury, for instance, would lead to insomnia. I would say we're not totally sure. I do believe that it's a common thing after traumatic brain injury. Um, but 
how exactly, you know, is very difficult to understand. I don't think we quite know um, why that happens. I don't have any easy uh, fixes for you. But also as we age also, you know, sleep patterns change, metabolism changes, the way uh, we can, you know, uh, get fat off our bodies or put it on our bodies changes. And so sleep changes too. And there's very complicated mechanisms involved here that we're, that hopefully will tease out in the coming years. Yeah, in a way, I guess I, I, my my question wasn't even fair because there's so many factors that go into how my sleep might be affected, including the, the, the brain injury, including the fact that I'm sleeping with another person all the time, but also the fact that I'm getting older. Um, and so uh, I think, did you mention that melatonin is it's secreted by the pineal gland, but it's not even a very reliable treatment for sleep loss, Is uh, that it works on some people and doesn't on others? That's correct. Yeah, you'd think, you know, oh, melatonin prepares the body for sleep. Therefore, mm-hmm. give someone a pill of melatonin. I believe some of them are extracted actually from, from cow pineal glands. Hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, well, wouldn't putting more melatonin in the, in the body then prepare your body for sleep? I mean, it makes perfect, perfect sense. Um, but it does seem to not work quite that well. It does work for a lot of people. I, it's sort of one of the more mild uh, sleep aids, you know, milder than Ambient it tends to be a little stronger and, and other ones as well. Um, so melatonin is often sort of the, the first go-to, especially for people, hospitalized people, let's say, who are on a whole lot of other medications and you don't want anything to interact. Mm-hmm. I guess I just find it very mixed um, how it, how well it works. I've used it myself, mostly like uh, while traveling. It does, it does uh, studies do show it does help with jet lag, for instance, you know, to reset in a similar way, you're resetting your clock on this new, circadian rhythm when you travel to a different time zone and so taking the melatonin you know a few hours before when you want to go to bed in this new time zone um, does help it's not a miracle fix but um, it does um, help with some jet lag but yeah I just find it to have pretty mixed results though I I still do try it um, in my patients often also very important in the hospital setting is earplugs and signs on the door telling everyone to do not disturb and not writing for blood tests and medications to be given in the middle of the night and, you know, take patient sleep cycles into account. That, that was a big uh, kind of realization for me as I um, went through residency that I could make these little adjustments and get my patients a bit more sleep. What does the journey teach us about uh, our own bodies? How does travel help us understand how our bodies work? I think travel is very uh, a really good way of getting perspective, you know, as you know, on many areas of life. Um, but on our bodies, too, I think it's important to, um, you know, when you go to different uh, countries and experience different cultures, you see different things, different perspectives, different practices that can be give you important kind of insight into, into your own culture, maybe even give you better ways of doing things, you know, like the Indian way of, of wiping. Sometimes, sometimes that is called for, and, and actually I do... Um, you know, in patients suffering from, let's say, hemorrhoids or other things, you know, actually using water um, is a great way to do to uh, to clean. You know, and sometimes better. Um, and that can, you know, you can use a squirt bottle. You don't always have to use your left hand. Um, so even simple things like that, that you know, maybe uh, I might have never thought of, uh, you know, if I'd never left the U.S. Um, but even even the way uh, people decorate their bodies in different cultures. I was always fascinated by the way people use the forehead in India. You know, they, they decorate it in so many different ways from the bindi um, to the kind of little uh, streak of cinnabar dye that married women put into the part in their hair up from the forehead to show they're married. Or, you know, when I swam in the Ganges River, 
which I don't always recommend, but I enjoyed it. Mm. Um, you know, when you get out, the holy man wipes this orange and yellow uh, smear on your forehead as part of sort of the holy ceremony. And sort of like in the U.S., we don't use the forehead at all, you know, or in the West, we don't decorate it in any way, even though it's sort of perfect. It's this big, empty canvas on the body that you can use to display your marital status, your beauty, your holiness. Um, and so that's just an example of how different cultures use the body and use different parts. And so whether it's eating different parts of animals, whether it's decorating the body in different ways, or whether it's just perspective on left hand versus right hand, I think traveling is a, is a really important perspective on the human body. You know, maybe as important as what I got in medical school, dissecting my cadaver, but from a completely different perspective that ends up complementing sort of the medical perspective in many useful ways. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including the information about Jonathan Reisman's book, The Unseen Body, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Mm-hmm.